This Lord's Day, we return to our study entitled Biblical Church Discipline. We are looking at the confessional authority that naturally comes from the Word of God, upon which the Reformed and Presbyterian Church exercises discipline in all forms of manifestations that are required by Scripture. And we maintain those as covenantal practices within the church as it has been in the history of the church from the time of the Old Testament through to the new establishment of the new administration with the offices that Christ has given to his church unto our generation and in generations to come. This is sermon number seven. We're talking about the biblical authority of the church, and we're going to move from this after this week because we will have established the confessional understanding of how we as a Reformed and Presbyterian church understand and have articulated our view of the section we've been dealing with on church censorship. And so it is, our text has been Matthew 16, 19. Here our Lord gives us instruction. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Shall we look to the Lord our God? Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us throughout the history of the church the basic principles that have been established and finally as the church was in a time of abuse and siege from those who would use the discipline wrongfully in the midst of that great reformation they responded with the right way to deal with matters of church discipline. Let us, O oh God, continue to honor that which they formulated from the word of the living God. We ask now, O oh God, that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which your Holy Spirit and word would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Before I go on to section four, I would remind you that it's very important that we understand that we've been given a responsibility as the body of Christ and as the officers of the church to ensure that 
We care for the souls of those who profess the name of Christ. Care for their souls. We are the children of the living God. As a matter of fact, in Paul's writing of Ephesians, he says we've been adopted or literally placed as a son in the family of God. Christ is an heir, a joint heir of which we are a part of that body, redeemed by him, our fellow kinsmen. And so we have a duty and a responsibility to act in a certain way in the family. And thus there is that picture of love, love that is not blind, that which is lip service. Oh, I love you, but I'm going to steal from you. I love you, but I'm going to cheat on you. I love you, but I'm going to kill you. One of the funnier rock and roll songs. I loved her, but I had to kill her, and I can still hear her nagging in the backyard. I love it. It's a big life. I can love somebody and kill them anyway. That's the world we live in. And just saying, I love you, they believe it really means I love you. But we know, as Jesus said, no greater love hath a man than another man would lay his life down for him. He would die for him. That kind of love is based on not words, but actions. If I say, as an elder of the church, I love you, it means that not only am I willing to preach to you, to teach you, to counsel, to guide you, but when necessary, admonish you, even rebuke you, and if necessary, cut you off from the Lord's table and even excommunicate you. Say, oh, that sounds harsh. If you don't discipline you're the child that you have, can you really say you love him? When you don't show him there's consequences to actions in this life that we are responsible for, how do you show him you really do love him? Because love requires not words, but actions. If I say I love my wife, which the Bible says I must do, what do I do? I don't violate the law of God toward her. I don't sin against her. I don't violate her person. 
when this Bible says, love your neighbor, what does that mean? But it's not talking about going over and having an affair with your neighbor. It means don't violate them. Your actions are what? Keeping the law of God toward them. So you don't violate them as a person. Oh, so loving your wife and loving your neighbor are kind of the same thing. Yes. Well, guess what? The Bible says loving your enemy. Some people say, well, what does that entail? I say I love him, but what do I do? We well, see, you may love your enemy, but if your enemy tries to kill you, you'll have to kill him. Somebody will say, naturally. Well, how can you say you love him? Well, I didn't violate the law of God toward him. He violated the law of God toward me. I was willing to live at peace with him. I was willing to not violate his person. I was not going to transgress the law of God against him. And in that way, we love our wives, we love our neighbor, and we love our enemies. When we say we are to love our children, what do we do? We teach them through our love and through our discipline that all sin has consequences as well as crimes. And to be assured, when you commit a sin or a crime, you will have to pay for it one day. God does not wink at crime, and the state is not going to take it lightly. You can come in and say, well, you know, I really didn't mean it, but, you know, the guy was standing there, and I shot him. What else could I do? But I'll apologize. Kind of hard. He's dead. Well, I'll apologize to the family and go my own way. No, you won't. The state won't allow it. When you violate the law of God, well, I'll go my own way. No, if you say you're a Christian, God says to the church, discipline that person. Sins and crimes of the civil nature or criminal have consequences. And that's what we're talking about in all of this. Well, I want us to move on to section four of the confession. Now listen to what the divines say here. And listen carefully. Because we've gone through three sections and we've been looking at this year's seventh sermon in the series. And so you should have an idea of what the church has agreed the word of God says. And then we'll look at the scripture that backs everything that they're saying. To show you, this is not made up. They went to the scripture and said, how when do these things apply to us? Beginning section four. Now it says, having 
made the assertions of section one, two, and three, and that we have a responsibility to discipline people within the church. God has given to some the keys of the kingdom. They say, for the better attaining of these ends. Let me stop it there. Attaining of these ends. What they're referring to is back to the concept of the duty in church discipline is to regain one who says they're in Christ or to remit them as a sinner and to bind them unto judgment. To declare their repentance or to declare that they're in sin. To who? I mean, if God's omniscient and Jesus Christ is part of the Trinity, he knows who are we declaring it to? The body. You and every other church that claims that they're a Christian. We tell them all. You've got a major problem with this guy. Beware. They go from church to church and they don't get to stay long. And the reason why is they're basically in trouble most of the time that they come. So it is for the better attaining of these ends that we can what? That we can institute a means by bringing them back to the fold or if necessary, remitting them back to their sin and saying they will not obey God's word. Thus, for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church, they said. Now, this is a part of the duty that the divines maintain belong to the church officers. It doesn't mean that it doesn't also deal with the rest of the church. Of course, the church has officers that they have voted in, that Presbytery has ordained. And it is their duty to enact these sanctions. And so the rest of the body of Christ, who also profess the true faith, want to ensure that there is a continual striving over their lives and those who are other members of the church to live and walk the Christian faith aright. Why? They don't want to see somebody die and go to hell. What's the ultimate goal for the elders, for those who are called to rule? To get you into heaven. We're not going to do it ourselves. It's just we're going to hold the word up before you and say, thus says the word of God, and your job is to obey you don't have the right of autonomy. The whole concept of you deciding for yourself what is right and what is wrong goes back to the Garden of Eden. That was the promise 
that the devil was panhandling off to Eve. Ha! God knows that the day you eat at the fruit, your eyes will be open and you're going to be just like God and you'll get to determine what is good and evil. We live with that lie. I know what's good for me. No, you don't. The word of God knows what's good for you. And unless you agree with the word of God, you have no idea what's good for you. Because you still have that remnant of sin within you that still says, hey, bring it this way. You don't have that right. So for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church, they said, are to proceed by one admonition. Now, what does it mean to admonish? It means to warn or reprimand the individual. We admonish someone, basically, we warn them. When we get a little tougher about it, we rebuke them. It's another form of admonition. Only it's kind of stern. You're in sin. Repent and quit doing what you're doing. Now, some churches, if you go to admonition, will say you got to try be tried in the court. I don't think so. Somebody comes up and says, "I'm having a problem." with this or that in my life. What should I do? We just give them an admonition. We admonish them to not get involved in that sinful action, to flee from it. Maybe we say to them, come in, let's talk it over, let's get some counseling, go our way. If there's some churches that want to discipline you over that, write it all off, have a trial, that's up to them. I don't see where that's viable. Because it could be just a matter of someone saying, you know, I've had this thing kind of afflict me and I've been tempted really heavy and I've caught myself in it once or twice. What do I do? Come on in. Let's talk about it. It's gone. They handle it. Sometimes they come back and say, I'm not doing well. Or maybe... Somebody in their family, let's say a spouse, comes and says, hey, he's got a problem and he ain't getting over it. I know he's come to you. And you go back and you rebuke him for it. I thought you were told, stop this. What is the problem here? And maybe the elders are called in for that. But it's not something you write up and take the court per se. But you come in and you say, you've got to stop this. You say you're a Christian. Get rid of this out of your life. But that's what an admonition. It's a means of reprimanding someone or giving them a warning, an oral warning to not be in sin in their life. Because if they don't eventually flee from it, they're going to get caught up into it. And then they're going to come under its power. 
And if we can give a oral admonition, or even if it's a stern rebuke, and they flee sin, that's the end of it. And praise God, they have listened to the exhortation given to them. Personally, I wish all people would do that. It would make our job a lot easier when we're having to deal with admonishing an individual for sin. Maybe there's something that you see and you go, hey, don't do that. Somebody sees you doing that, they're going to know you're in sin, and, and it is a sinful practice. you got to get rid of it. And I wish to God that they would do that, but they don't. Some just refuse to obey the word of God. And you know what the natural response is? To change the meaning of the word of God. Oh, yeah, the Bible doesn't say that. That's not the way I interpret it. Okay. Wait till God gets done with you. You'll see what I'm talking about. You get punished one way or the other. Doesn't matter. So it is. We give admonishment. And there's things that are yeah, they're just simple. I once had, and I won't tell you when, it's been years ago, years ago. Guy came to me and he said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And I said, fine. He said, you know, neighbor lady, I was out in the front yard, raking up leaves and she came out and was talking to me and then invited me in for a cup of coffee. And I thought, oh dear, <laughs> I don't want to hear where this is going. And then he says, and then it's gotten to be every day I go over and have a cup of coffee and a cigarette. I said, well, number one, you shouldn't be smoking cigarettes. And number two, what are you doing married at somebody else's house? that's married to somebody else, having coffee with them. Now you could tell where he was leaning because he thought he was in a problem. And I reached up so gently, gently, I really mean it. And I kind of tapped him on the face, not hard. And I said, you know, did you feel that? He said, yeah. I said, imagine that coming about 150 miles an hour faster when your wife is on the other end of that hand. Because she ain't going to be happy when she finds out you're over at this woman's house. You need to quit now. And you need to go tell her it was a mistake and you've repented of it and you were honest and owning up to it. He did. Thank God. It's so easy to get caught up in a small sin that could eventually become a very large sin. Well, they say if you admonish someone and they don't hear you, they said to proceed by admonition or 
suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's table for a season. That is to refuse them to come to communion, which symbolizes a union with Christ. That we are feeding here on Christ. We are eating his flesh, drinking his blood symbolically in a spiritual way in which we are literally feeding upon our Lord. I am in union with Christ and am I communion with him. That you are walking a faithful walk. And that you have consistently demonstrated that walk in a way that allows you to come. You see, the first step of discipline to come here is your own self-discipline. Every week we try to give you the same instruction. We've written it out. Before you come to the table of the Lord, ask yourself a question. Have you lived to the glory of God this week? Have you sought forgiveness of sins to make things right with God? And you've dealt with sin in your life. If you have, then come. Eat, drink of the Lord. If you haven't, then do not come and eat or drink, but go and make things right. That's called self-discipline. If you don't, and we find out, then the officers have the duty to say, you cannot come. Now, on Calvin's day, they were a lot harder about that. We pass out the Lord's Supper, and we just simply, if someone's under discipline, we say, you, you can't have that. But Calvin's day, you had a communion coin. You went in, you had to be examined. They looked up to see if you had been written up by the elders during the month. And if you have, you could get no coin unless you had repented and solved the problem. So when it come time to get communion, people would be called to come up front. And if you could not have a coin, you couldn't come up front. And guess what everybody thought? Yay, you're in sin. Something is going on in your life. And you stood out like a sore thumb. Or is it a green thumb? I don't know. Anyways, one of those things. Why? Because you were in sin and the elders had a duty to say to you, you can't come to the Lord's table. You'll bring judgment upon yourself. Every week we tell you about that right out of 1 Corinthians. It says some are sick, some are weak, but some have actually died because they have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ by eating of this table and drinking of that which represents the blood of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. 
So it is, the divines say, we go from admonition, which I think would be both a, a verbal and a warning and a rebuke. And that's usually how most of our church or book orders talk to us about it. First warn them, then rebuke them, and then cut them off from the Lord's table for a season. Sometimes this is referred to as the lesser actions of an excommunication. Why? Because you're saying, because you're not acting like a Christian, we're not going to let you act like a Christian and show that you have communion with Christ. You're under discipline. Thus, until your lifestyle is restored properly and you're walking upright again according to the law word of God, you will not come and eat and drink of the Lord's table. And so just by cutting you off, it's the lesser form of an excommunication. But they also go on and say, and by excommunication from the church. What does excommunication mean? Excommunication is a pronouncement that the individual is not truly a professing Christian. Based on their sinful lifestyle, their rebellious living to the word of God, the rejection of those who have been given the keys to the kingdom in saying to them, you need to do this and this, and you need to repent to get back in where you need to be as a Christian within the body of Christ. They're saying this is a part of our duty. Do you like it? Of course not. It's confrontational. But all aspects of church discipline is confrontational. It is having to deal with people in sin. And you know what? I've never met somebody in sin that's happy with anybody confronting them about their sin. Never. Because they don't. They'll make up excuses. They'll change the meaning of the Bible so that it doesn't affect them. They'll get mad and leave your church. Why? They don't want to change from there. They want to find a place that will just let them alone, let them live any way they want to, and not get involved in their life. But they want you to think good of them, that's all. But that's kind of like a social organization it's for community purposes. We're not that kind of a social organization. We are a church. We're an organic body of believers who say that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and we're to be living for God. To walk in the faith that he has brought us to walk in. Our love is obedience to Christ. That's the action. That's how we say to Christ, I love you. We are the bridegroom and he is the bride, or the groom. We're the, I'm sorry, we got a backwards. We are the bride, he is the bridegroom. We're to be obedient to him. He lays his life down for us. He loves us. But what would be our duty to love him? Paul says in Ephesians, the church is kind of like a marriage. The wife submits to her husband. Living for Christ is submitting to his authority. So who does that on earth now? Those who are given the keys of the kingdom. You kind of get the principle that's involved here? It's very simple. And he goes on to say, or they do in, in section four, according to the nature of the crime. Now, before you go, ah, crime, they do not mean a criminal or civil crime. Because that is not in the purview of the church authority. I told you before, I've never shot anybody. We've never beaten anybody. We've never hanged anybody for a violation of the law of God as it pertains to the church. That's not within our purview. We can admonish. We can cut you off from the table and we can excommunicate you, declare you publicly not to be a Christian. We won't tell you not to come to church. We'll tell you, please come to the very place that can restore your soul when you hear the word of God preached. But when they say crime, they're talking about that sin that is the transgression of God's law. And so it is, it's a moral or if you will, ethical violation of what God has commanded according to the Ten Commandments. Now, to every sin, there may be some form of a crime that is civil or criminal. That's dealt with by the state. That's their calling, not ours. They might beat you or they might put you in jail or they may hang you or shoot you or whatever the popular thing of the day is to put people to death with. But we don't have that authority. But the divines were saying sin against God is like a crime. And depending on the severity of the crime, 
if necessary, they need to be excommunicated. Then they have this last section. And demerit. I love this word because when I was in college, Christian college, they had demerits. That was every time you got wrote up for something, you get so many demerits. And then over a period of time, if they accumulate, you were campus. That meant you couldn't leave the campus of the college where your dorm was, except to go to work. That was it. But the word demerit means the facts that are in purview of your actions. Those facts that deserve censure for exactly what they are. The demerit of the person. Well, Matthew 18, 17 says to us, here Christ speaking, and if he shall neglect to hear them, and this is coming off of Matthew. Remember now, Matthew 18, two things you've got to remember about church discipline. If I sin against, for example, Brother Jason, that is something that's private, personal, he and I, we've got to work it out. He may go and get JP and enter and say, we're going to talk to the pastor and we're going to work this out. At second step, because we get them working out the first time. Now, if I won't hear them, then they're to take it to the church. In our case, in our denomination, they take it to the Presbyterian and say, we need three ministers down here to have a trial. Pastors in sin, we got a problem. We can't get this thing resolved. But there is a difference between a private sin and a public sin. When you sin, when you sin, whether it's in public, that's some aspect of the Ten Commandments you violate, doesn't matter what it is, can be anything. But when it is done before all, then the rebuke is before all. That's the principle in the history of the church. If you sin publicly, you're going to be rebuked publicly. If you sin privately, then you got to do Matthew 18. But you can't do one thing publicly and then expect to have Matthew 18 apply to you. It doesn't work that way. And so this is what we're hearing at the end of this. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. If he neglects to hear the church, that is to hear what the church says and determines, let him be unto thee as a heathen, a non-Christian, and a publican, a tax collector. It's amazing the Lord didn't like tax collectors either. Well, you have the, another admonition of it. You can see where this is coming from. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, and verse 13, beginning at verse 4. 
Here, Paul writing, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Think about that. We're talking about what? Listen to what he says, deliver them up to Satan. We do do that when we excommunicate someone. We simply say, okay, God, we've done everything we can do. They want to live in sin. We're turning them over to Satan. From here on out, you have to deal with them. <coughs> you will have to deal with their sin. And believe me, he does. But then verse 13 says, but them that are without God judges, that is those who are from out the world. He goes on to explain it. He, doesn't, he says, we're not of the world, but we live in the world. But he's not talking about judging the world because we already know they're non-Christian. God judges them. But those who say they're of Christ those we have to judge. And thus he says, therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. By wicked, he means that person who is in sin. Put them away from you. Now, that doesn't mean that you violate the law of God toward them. You still have to treat them as a non-Christian kind of avoid some aspects of it if they want money because it's a tax collector. But you don't violate the law of God toward them. I mean, if your neighbor who is a heathen comes over and says, some guy's trying to kill me, he's got a gun, he's chasing me. You defend them. You help them. There's always a place to help. There's always a place of benevolence even to the lost. The lost also have the right of us being kind and generous to them. But we do not invite those who are in sin to come and participate in a fellowship as if they've not sinned. When in reality, They've already been declared a non-Christian. I don't have my neighbors over to fellowship with me. I don't. I fellowship with Christians. I don't have a lot in common with non-Christians. I can be nice to them. Oh, if I meet them somewhere, I could talk to them. But I'm not their buddy. I'm not their best friend. Am I kind? Yes. Do I keep the law of God toward them? Yeah, I don't steal, cheat. I don't do anything to violate the Ten Commandments toward them. But when we have someone who says they're of Christ and they are acting with sin in their life and they're wicked, he says, 
Therefore, put away from among yourselves the whole body. So we don't shun. We don't see them and turn our back. Walk away. If they come and say, I need help. This has happened. You know, my car's in the ditch. We go help them get it out. We still treat them with Christian kindness. We still don't violate the law of God toward them. But they're not our friend. If they're not a friend to the Lord Jesus Christ, how can they be a friend to us? 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Here again, Paul says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's what they do. They admonish you. They warn you. They rebuke you. They're guiding you. They're educating you. They're teaching you. Flee from the ways of sin. Then Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, and then verses 14 and 15. First, verse 6. Now we command. This Notice the word here. Command. He didn't say, now we're going to give you an option here. Now we command you, brother, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. What's the principle? Hey, we go to church together. But I'm in adultery. Hey, would you like to go to a movie with me? No. I'm not going to participate in saying you're sinning and it's okay. You're in sin and what you need to do is repent, turn to the church, and demonstrate real repentance in the Christian life that you live. Do not what? Withdraw yourself. Do not walk with him who is disorderly, i.e., who is acting out in sin and will not be obedient to the command of our Lord. And not after the tradition which he received of us. The tradition being, this is what we taught you. Now he's walking in opposition to the doctrine and practice of the church. Withdraw from him. They're wicked. I don't know how much plainer that can get. Not easy. Did I say violate them by stealing or cheating or lying to them? No. You never violate anybody with the law of God. You always act with kindness and courtesy toward anyone. We, as far as possible, live at peace with all men, but we do not participate in their sin. 
Now he says, verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, by what we have taught, note that man and have no company with him. Note him, have no company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. Verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He says he's of the faith. We're not going to fellowship with him. We're not going to participate in his sin. But we're not going to say he's Satan personified. Why do we do these things? Why do we admonish? Why do we cut him off from the Lord's table? Why do we excommunicate him? Because he says he is a brother. And these are things that are designed to do what? To bring him back to the body of Christ. To restore himself. To show that he really is a disciple of Christ. And then in Titus 3.10, and we'll close. A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. The Bible is clear. This is why the divines have written this chapter on censorship. It has a purpose. It demonstrates the love of Christ in us toward those who say they love Christ. I mean, if you really love somebody, you're going to try to win them back. I know people say, oh, they discipline here at that church. They're mean. No, they're not. They love you like a child. And if they don't discipline you, they don't love you. That's the big lie. Yeah, nobody likes discipline. I'm under it all the time. Everything I say and do is governed by my presbytery. I'm never out from under their authority, ever. And the presbytery is never out from under the authority of the whole general assembly. There is accountability all the way around. Everyone, from the member in the pew to the ministers, all of us, including the moderators, everyone is under authority. And is responsible for their actions. I'm telling you, when the divines wrote these sections, they were saying to the church, how can you say you love Christ and not follow the command of God? Not follow the command given his word. 
If you don't go after the lost sheep to bring him back, how can you say you love him when you leave him out there to be slaughtered by wild animals? Nobody, when confronted, think about it. When have you ever enjoyed somebody confronting you about something and you go, wow, thank you, I really enjoy that. You don't. You know what? It's a part of the sin that we inherited in Adam's original sin. We want to be autonomous and we don't want to be told what to do. We want to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Unfortunately, we're not given that option. God has already decided it for us and he's given us officers in the church to help ensure that those who walk in violation of his law are brought back and if they go beyond the moral aspect to an actual criminal act that is actually a civil or criminal act, then they have to deal with the state who could put them to death for it. God's serious about violating his law. Why would we not want, if we say we love somebody, Brother Jason, Enro's not here, so I gotta use somebody. Enro's here. Enro, if you're listening, you gotta get back so I can use you in more illustrations. If Brother Jason went astray, what would be our job? To bring him back, why? He's our brother, we love him. If we didn't love him, we'd just say, I'll let him go, who cares? No. We love him. We want him back. We want him to be a part of the body of Christ. That's what we have to do in our daily walk. Constantly be in love, pray for, exhort one another, the Bible says, to do what is right. The body of Christ God established the church. He established it in calling all of us to be a part of the body, and especially he gave officers to the church. And they have a job. And believe me, it's not an easy job. But we don't have an option. As Paul said, you're commanded to do it got to do it. It's not a popular job, believe me. I have never had anybody that's in sin say to me, man, I am so glad you have rebuked me. I am so glad you have excommunicated me. They never say that, but they do when they come back. And I'm glad to say when we do what God says to do, many come back. I've had him come back and sit in my office and say, we were wrong. We realize it now. We sinned against the church and you. The elders told us and we didn't listen. Now we know we were wrong. Can you ever forgive us? Of course we can forgive you. 
fruit of repentance. What are you doing? Going to church. Where are you going? Here. Great. Are you living for the Lord? Have you got rid of these things in your life? Yes. Wonderful. When you see that, you think back and say, oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you. For what I could not do, you have done in their life. What a blessing. What a blessing to see people brought back by the grace of God. And say, you sin horrible. Many come back to be a part, to rejoin, to stand up and say to the body, we were wrong. We want to admit it, want to be brought back into the church. What are we doing? We're trying to to ensure that as we care for their soul, their final reward is with the Lord. That's all. If you don't get that, you don't understand anything about Christ or the church. And I would dare say you don't understand anything about a family whatsoever. And that's what we really are as a family. Let me exhort you. Pray for our family. Encourage one another. Every time you see each other, how you doing? You got anything you need me to pray for? Are you at war with sin in your life? That's what mortification of sin is. It's a daily fighting of sin. Putting off sin, killing it, putting on Christ. Walking in him, walking in his righteousness, progressing in our sanctification. Why is it we don't do that? Why is it we just simply ignore each other and say, well, he hadn't done anything that seems real bad, so I ain't going to say anything. You ought to say something. Man, I'm praying for you. I love you. If there's problems, let me know. You don't even have to tell me. Just tell me, I need prayer. And I'll pray for you. And if I can help you, I'll be there. And if you need to go talk to somebody and want somebody to go with you, I'll be with you. That's what a real family does. We're not a club. We're a family in Christ. And I hope you will take that seriously to heart. This is our life and our family. And our goal when we get to heaven is that we're all going to be there. And we'll be with our loved ones that have gone on before us. Shall we?